0: DA-DA da da DA-DA DA DA dead DO 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 dead dead DO 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 dead Bum 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 dead Bum 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 dead dead
1: dead
0: dead
1: So a bit of a special bonus episode Which is an interview with Chris Hughes Chris Merrick Hughes Producer of The Hurting and Songs from the Big Chair And also involved in The Seeds of Love The early stages The great thing about getting this interview was He agreed to it knowing That it was going to be specifically about Tears and Fears because it's the Tearsphere's podcast series, so all questions are going to relate to it. So I don't need to do the whole bio thing, cover his entire career. We just focus just on on the boys. And if you do want to bio interview with him i recommend um the hustle podcast did a really good interview with him recently so you can check that out uh we chatted for a couple of hours Uh, it was really enjoyable really interesting and and there's other seeds of love bits that'll be included in the next episode Um, for now enjoy this chat with the legendary chris merrick hughes This is the interview. So um, initially, to, to set things up, how you became a producer for Tears of Fears, your role within Adam and Ants as Merrick, um, the performer, drummer, as well as producer, was yeah. that experience uh, being in the on in the front line? Is that what in- encouraged you to want to be in the back room?
2: I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I was always interested in at the time, technology and recording techniques and tape loops and analog machines. I always had a fascination with that. And, you know, my approach to Adam and the ants, I mean, the first thing I did was actually uh, as producer before playing. So I had an interest in producing. And then when I left Adam and the ants by nature of a bunch of people, the, the tears for fears, things cropped up. And I, I, took a train down to Bath from London where I was living, Uh, met the guys. We talked about what they were trying to do and the fact that they'd had some recordings which they weren't happy with. And, uh, you know, we started work quite soon after that meeting and went into the studio in London and recorded uh, Memories Fade and Mad World. Pretty much super quick, you know.
1: Right. So moving back a little bit. So those yeah. first initial recordings were their first two singles. So that would have been Suffer the Children and Pale Shelter. Yeah. How did you get that first introduction? It's only like from researching this, I realized that you were in a band with Dave Bates, was right. the a- A&R
2: man for Phonogram, the Blitz That's Brothers.
1: Right. And that was like a production team and a band as well.
2: Yeah, it was um, what, it, what that was, was early experiments with um, A&R and producing and I think it was something that Dave um, was very interested in developing. He, he, wanted to, he was in A&R, and he wanted to sort of develop acts and get more into the kind of not just finding bands playing in pubs. He wanted to sort of um, look at the nature of recording bands and producing. And I knew him, and he said, would you help? You know, I've got this band. I found this band up in Liverpool. They're called Dalek, I Love You. Um, I want to go up to Liverpool at, at the weekend and record some stuff with them, do you want to come? So I said yeah, so we we, we, we travelled up to Liverpool I met the band and we recorded I think three, three two or three tracks brought them back to Phonogram in London and, and um, the guy who was head of R at that point said oh these are great, yeah we, these are good enough to release, yeah let's, let's. so I got a little contract for having produced them we are
0: looking round us now almost concerned by what we see vaguely into
2: production and um in the process of um working with the tears or about to start working with the tears they heard or particularly roland i think heard the dalek i love you record and liked it so that was a kind of a nice starting point that he'd heard something i'd done that he thought was okay so that was a big plus point for them yeah i think so you know i mean there are other aspects to it. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a pre-seed version. There's a long version. I mean, I, I remember being at the um, Phonogram offices and Roland was on the phone to Dave and he was not happy with the way um, some tracks had turned out. And I think there was a kind of discussion about um, whether they could be done again or whether they had to be released or budgets. It was all this that kind of stuff back in the day. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, and, and dave said look why don't you chris why don't you have a word with Roland and and kind of deduce where he's at and what's going on um so i yeah i sat on the phone <laughs> with him for about 20 minutes chatting about the nature of what they'd done what they were confident about what they were worried about and blah 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 and it was a, just a lovely conversation and then when it came to doing the record apart from the fact that he'd heard the Dalek eye record he also was Remembered the conversation with that guy on the phone. So, so I was that guy on the phone and uh, the guy that had worked on the Dalek I Love You record. So, when we finally met in Bath, it was, you know, there'd been some ice broken and it was kind of okay. And we talked about, you know, common musical interests and, you know, how you might work a certain synthesizer. And we just kind of pulled our resources and it went from there. Right. But it was very quick. The thing is, you know, similarly with, um, Working with Adam and the Ants, it was super quick. You know, I met Adam um, on a Tuesday. It sounds like a, <laughs> a terrible pop song. I met Adam on a Tuesday. <laughs> we were we were in the studio recording on the Friday. You know, things got things were done very quickly. You must have
1: been very young. You are from like twenty four when you started yeah. with that's yeah. as a producer. That's very young to be a
2: producer. Yeah, I, I think it, it probably isn't these days, but it was. I mean, I think there are people that produce. You know, although the, the meaning of being a producer has changed a lot. Um, but, yeah, just it was one of those things where, you know, I was I knew how to play drums. I knew um, about rhythm. I had a sense of all that. Um, and then producing was something you kind of pick up as quickly and as efficiently as you can. You know.
1: So Kurt said in the Classic Albums um, documentary that he yep. knew you were a producer. Yeah for Adam and the Ants he didn't know you were Merrick in Adam and the Ants that's is that true yeah that's you true. never had that conversation like no we did like, watch an Adam and the Ants video and think oh yeah that's, that's me Marco it's, Merrick Terry Lee
2: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> thing is I got off the train you know and I, uh, and I met Kurt and Roland and there was a little bit of a moment of is it him Is, that, is <laughs> you, <know." laughs> well, you didn't have the
1: makeup on did you or the, the, the flowery shirt
2: I didn't have the flowery shirt and the pillow sleeve (laughs) and I I was in civvies. You know, I I got off the train looking pretty straightforward and, um, you know, we just in in Kurt's place and talked for ages and, and, um, you know, I caught the train back to London and then very short period of time after that, we were in, we're in Brit Row, you know, Britannia Row studios in London and, um, you know, cutting tracks.
1: So as a producer, how important is it to actually get on and be personable and, for you to like each other between artist and producer, can you have an antagonistic relationship and still produce good work? Or does it need to have that kind of that kind I think, of
2: connection? I, think, I think, I mean, I, I know enough producers to know that it varies a lot. I mean, some producers are incredibly draconian. You know, don't do that. Don't eat your soup with a fork. Pay <sighs> Stop doing that.
1: That's, that. That is pretty good advice, to be fair.
2: It is. It's all good advice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, you get a certain record that comes out as a result. You All know, right. the result of that is a band that may not really like you much and feel that, you know, you contributed. You just bossed everybody around and left no space for creativity. So there's there's a resentment that builds up in things like that. And it's never really been my approach. My approach has probably been the exact opposite, is to try and get people to realise their best work, you know. Okay. So a memories
1: fade you said was the first that the first song that they presented to you as a new song you'd not heard
2: before yeah it was a, yeah i hadn't heard it no I no i hadn't heard mad world and i hadn't heard memories i think it was memories of fate
1: but so that presented to you as a as a demo tape or was it roland playing the song to you in person
2: both both there was a right. there was a recording of it i believe and yeah we just you know i mean you we just set up drum machines and you know, keyboards and a guitar amp and s- started layering up and building up how it should be, you know. It wasn't like a band that were all playing in a room at the same time. It was, it was like multi-tracking. Everyone was into layering things up. So you'd lay a drum box down and you'd add the bass part and a couple of keyboards and a guide vocal and then add some more synths and then take away some stuff which was just a guide and a bit jigsawy, really.
1: Was there ever a band dynamic during the hurting sessions? I know Manny played drums on it, but was there ever a, a band set up? We had a drum, bass, guitar, keyboards at the same time playing live.
2: Later on in the process, there was a band that rehearsed, you know, rehearsed for shows, but there was never really, certainly in the hurting, there was never really a band that went, OK, we all understand how this track goes. Let's all play at the same time. And no, there, was, there wasn't.
1: Okay, so Manny would literally come in and put a drum track down and then go, and
2: then you build from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, actually, it, uh, Man, Manny was fantastic at playing along to things too. So there were times when a track would be built with a drum machine, for example. This is primarily the first record. This is the hurting. thing. Yeah. You know, a lot of drum machines and guide stuff where placeholders where that will be that synth and we'll put that in. And then, you know, Manny... Um, would come in and play, you know, a part, and he'd listen to it on the cans and get the tempo, and you know, and join in. There weren't, I don't think, there are any tracks where the drums were laid down first.
1: So, for those seven songs that were new, because you had you had the two singles, you had the prisoner as a B-side, and then you mm-hmm. had the other seven songs. Were they? Did you hear all those seven songs as one batch that was presented to you, or was it you do hear a song, you work on it, hear another song, work on it?
2: I, don't, I think uh, from memory. I had a working knowledge of the pieces of music, yeah, in some form, uh, by the time we started doing the album. Because, we, you know, we, we did Mad World and when we played, and it was just like, well, let's see how we all get on and let's see how it goes. It wasn't like, yep, you know, we're all linked in to do an album. So, you know, by the time we did the album, I, I knew the kind of the nature of all the work, of all the songs that were being developed or, you know, finished off. I knew, I knew them by the time we were recording them what was your initial reaction when you heard those songs? I just thought they were great. You know, I mean, they're they're incredibly talented guys. And, you know, they had a great way of doing things. It was inventive. It was creative. I I just loved it. And I, you know, I worked with them saying, well, if you want to do that, perhaps we could try it like this. Or, you know, perhaps we could double that synth here. Or, you know, let's get those power chords on the guitar chiming out. It was a very um, straightforward set of discussions about how things should be. We, you know, it was like it fell into place relatively easily. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't really a case of what do you mean? Make a suggestion and, and the suggestion would be looked at and taken up or, yeah, it kind of doesn't work and you move on and do something else. So it was pretty easy in terms of the musicality of making that record.
1: So the studio setup up for that first album was Roland and Kurt and yourself and Ross Cullum. Yeah. Did it divide into groups in terms of two people felt this way, two people felt that, or was it all a case of everyone being on the same page or were there, did it depend on the song?
2: I don't remember it being, uh, we have a negotiation to do here because two people think this and two people think that. I mean, there's a certain amount of that happens in any setting in any studio recording. There may be someone who has a different view on something, but um, you know, one manages those things, but I don't remember particularly a kind of A camp and B camp about anything specific, no. How long did the album take to record
1: in total from start to finish?
2: Oh, you got me there. Yeah. Okay, quite a long time. <laughs> There'll be people who know that. I don't, I can't remember. It felt like it was quite a long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because there are artists that like record loads and loads of songs and then you eventually whittle it down to the album you want. Like the Springsteen approach where you'll like record 30, 40 songs and then yes. find an album within that. But with Tears of Fears, it seems like there's always just pretty much those songs. And then you record some B sides as B sides. Yeah. I mean, for example, like you've got a, a B side from 81 and a B side from 82 that goes onto the album. So mm-hmm. it feels like there's just those 10 songs. Was that the case? That like you had that there, material. There
2: may, here's the thing. There may well have been, as far as Roland's library of songs, there may well have been more songs. there was a there was a focus to get this record kind of done and be cohesive and that's what came out. Um I don't think anyone said well, certainly on the first album, I don't think anyone said, nope, we need more songs. It's it kind of felt like a, a nice bundle. It felt it felt quite complete in that sense. Unlike the second album, which has has been well documented yes. and there, you know, we were headlong in the middle of recording that and there were songs missing.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, um sure. so ideas opiates in the prisoner you always saw them as being part
2: of the album because they fit
1: is that the idea yeah Yeah,
2: i think so and the other thing to mention here is the fact that there was a we had a kind of thing like a b-side mentality and that was when you were mastering a track um, which was like for example the track mad world there was a, a sort of earnestness and an importance to get that as great as possible and for every bolt to be tight and it all to make sense and be a complete piece of work. But the B-side mentality was much more experimental and looser and wasn't so precious. And quite a lot of great writing came, Roland wrote a lot of good things where he wasn't under pressure to make a, a, you know, a blistering album track or another uh, single. So a lot of his writing was quite experimental and that led to a lot of strong work which it's not like writing a hit single it's got a different side of the brain and there was a lot of it was liberated and he he did a lot of great writing like that and things like ideas as opiates do have a kind of b-side mentality they just do See what you want. See-
1: Does that include Mad World itself? Because Roland said that
2: you originally wrote that as a B-side. Yeah, he maintains that. I never, I never, <laughs> knew, I never knew, I know that now, in recent years, but at the time, I didn't know that he'd written that as a B-side. So
1: the very first time you heard that song, was yeah. it on a
2: tape or was it in
1: person? Or in- um, May have been on a cassette. I may have heard it on a cassette. And when you heard it, do you think hit single or good I- album track or potential
2: B-side? No, I, first time I heard it, I thought this is great. I Can't wait to work on this and try and make this amazing. That was my response to that. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was inventive. I thought it chimed out. It was different. It had a great energy, and I, I couldn't wait to. I couldn't wait to work on it as a as a master recording. You know.
1: And as a rule, when you hear a batch of songs, do you always know? I get an instinct for what the hit singles are going to be. Like these three, I'm going to. I'm going to put aside and focus on these three because these are going to be the hits. These ones are going to go out into the world to promote the, the album as a whole.
2: When I was starting off, when I was a kid doing that, I used to think, of course, I can spot the three tracks. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And you learn pretty quickly that tracks that um, people can overlook and think are just quite nice, sometimes you hear those tracks and you think, hold on a minute, if that was changed appreciably that could be a single so there are times when you you hear something that everyone else has kind of gone well it's a nice tune it doesn't really add up to much and you can go no no the essence of that is brilliant let's work on that and try and make that you know be a single or something so sometimes you can spot singleness out of uh, something that's just a kind of unconsidered music and, and sometimes you hit, you see a, a, a single straight away, you know, you can hear that. I yeah. think I thought, I think I thought Mad World was, was going to be a, a single for certain, whether it was going to be a hit or not. Mm-hmm. That's, that's far too, there's an arrogance in that. I can't really head towards.
1: Right. Cause at that stage, I can imagine they would be under a lot of pressure because they had two flop singles and a third flop single could, could have been the end of them.
2: Couldn't it? Yeah, there was in those days a kind of, three strikes and you're out. But I also think that, um, you know, with respect to Dave Bates, who he deserves a lot of credit, uh, I think he, he would have kept that band on and supported that band had it been three flops. You know, he would have fought, yeah, yeah. He would have fought for them, you know, because they were worthy, because they were good enough. And the other thing is it's, sometimes it just takes time for people to appreciate a good band, especially when they weren't doing – they weren't gigging day in, day out like a lot of bands – but to give you some credit, what you did to those
1: two previous singles—you compare your versions to the originals—and it's—it's. But there's so much. Yeah. They got a, a got an oomph to them. They got a, a sheen to them. They
2: got a, a liveliness to them that the originals don't have. They, well, you actually kind of, made them better songs. It's kind of easy to say that. I mean, we did. By the time we did those, I mean, I think we were just working well together, and we just agreed we were going to try and make them more robust and more chimey and more sort of immediate yeah i mean that was the plan with those with those tunes i mean suffer the children's a perfect example of that because it's quite it's such a sad lyric but the, the
1: instrumental backing track you listen to it and it's such a jaunty poppy song it's just a beautiful but, you know, like
2: i think that's the case with roland's writing in general yeah but there's quite a lot of things where there's a very positive tone to it but what he's singing about could be quite introverted and and dark or sad or you know not just bright and breezy so there's there's quite a lot of his work is is quite deep and very very well thought through you know it's not it's rarely
1: superficial with roman i think that's what makes the album work because if you had music that actually matched the lyrics it would be quite depressing but because the melodies are so accessible and pure and I think on every album, every hit album, there's one track that kind of gets ignored and missed. And and for me, on the hurting, it's "Watch Me Bleed," right? Which to me is a great pop song, and it has that beautiful kind of warm strummed acoustic sheen to it. Yeah. And again, it's a really kind of sad kind of lyric.
2: I think Roland, uh, one of Roland's great escapes for him, is is writing an uplifting melody. You know, he can do it. So, you know, he might have the text might be quite dark and, and confused and reflective, but he can give you a melody which is so joyous and up, mm. And that's part of how brilliant they are. They can combine strong emotions with a real pop sensibility. They They do it time and time again.
0: before
1: we leave the hurting is there one particular either a memory you have of the sessions or one contribution that you made one suggestion that finished up on the the album We can say like that part of that song is my suggestion
2: no there's just a there's a i mean there's a million thing that we all did in order to get that record the way it came out it's Um, hard to say who did what on like a particular arrangement i think it's it's very important to kind of not do that in a lot of ways i I mean yeah there's things there were suggestions maybe try doing it this way or could we do that again it just felt like it wasn't in the pocket or it wasn't the right spirit um, so you know, a part of production is helping someone perform, getting their best performance onto tape. So there, yeah, there are lots of times I stopped recordings and said, "Let's try this, you know, a different way, and it would work out better or not." So yeah, lots of productional um, direction, but um, you know, musical ideas coming in from everywhere. You know, it wasn't like oh, try this on a marimba or try this, <laughs> try this banjo. It wasn't like that. I mean, Roland's got a pretty fantastic sense of palette so you know he'll be writing a piece of music and think yeah i kind of like the idea of a trumpet and a viola here you know and he'll know how we sound and as indeed i do and you know we'll agree on whether or not that's a good texture so it wasn't wasn't much sort of fighting for no no this track has to have bassoons on it you know it wasn't (laughs) you know it's pretty i think we pretty much saw eye to eye Right. I think that's the one
1: failing in The Hurting House is not enough banjo. Apart from that, I think it's pretty flawless.
2: When I get to release the producer's cut. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, that's a good question. Which song do you think would most benefit from the use of the banjo on it?
2: Mad World. Put banjo oh. on there. Yeah, absolutely. Be there, must
1: be a, there must be a banjo version of Mad World out there, but it'll be the Gary Jules version, won't I, it?
2: I hope the whole of Eastern Europe. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful banjo version of Mad World. I'm gonna look for that on YouTube and then edit it in right now. Yeah, let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm dying, are the best I've ever yeah. had.
1: I find it hard to tell you, because I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very bad So there's an interesting period post the hurting pre the big chair where yes. it seems like it's almost like an aimless period for Tears of Fears there was the where you are single so how how did that success of the hurting and those singles that all went top 5 how did that did you notice a change in the studio with Curt and Roland in terms of how they how they reacted to
2: that fame i've 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 witnessed that a lot across my career with people where they've had um, some success or they've, they've found that a methodology has worked for them. So they kind of want to stick to it or, you know, something becomes understood in a different way. When you're starting out and you're just not sure what's happening and things are going well, you kind of just roll with an intuition and that can lead you in a good place. When you've had some success, sometimes you, you feel there's a way things have to be. And um, I, I think that's the kiss of death. You should constantly look for uh, ways of making things work you know, not just sort of rely on how something's gone before. Having said that, not their fault, really. I think after the success of the first batch of singles, trying to work out who was going to do what live, playing live, touring, how successful they were becoming, that whole process, um, I think, was stressful and tiring. And I don't think that is a brilliant song. And it was, I think it was chosen, yet, Let's get that one done. Let's record that, you know, because there was a momentum. We need another single. Let's do that. And that song came along and there was quite a lot of energy in terms of, yep, regardless of the fact that it's not, you know, an immediate song. Yep, let's make that a single. What was that pressure coming from the record company?
1: Because it seems like um, Um, right at the time, there's a lot of pressure from the record company to release a single. I mean, he references it in "Everybody Wants to Rule the World. All the working out about, you know, constantly getting pressure from the record company that the next song is the next single.
2: So was that kind of, was it rushed out or was it? Yeah. It was ill conceivedly rushed out. Yes. But you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to particularly point any fingers at anybody because there's a whole, when you've got a, a young group that are being successful, the record company kind of want to make sure that that momentum's still going. You don't sort of take your eye off the ball, as it were. So I can see why there were people saying, "Nope, let's just get another single out. It doesn't have to be the greatest thing since the note. Let's just get another single out." And there, there's a kind of energy in in commercial record companyness which wants that and, and sort of survives on that. That track wasn't good enough. Ruby. personally really like it but that's you know that's not the point it wasn't it wasn't a good single choice yeah
1: yeah it might have been a good album track but not necessarily as a single
2: yeah
1: yeah so then there was mother's talk we said try with another producer and then came back to you so what was the process there was was there like just a parting of the ways was there an actual conversation or was it just you suddenly after a couple of months they came back to you with another song i
2: mean how did that work how it worked was they, I think they went off to do things and, and, you know, and I was doing, I don't know what record I was I was probably doing another record at the time. I can't remember. And I think I got a call from their manager at the time saying, Oh, you know, the guys, they, they, they kind of just want to go off and try other things and do try other experiments and um, work with other people. And I, and I remember thinking, yeah, fine. Great. Okay. Um, I think, I think I had a Wang Chung album lined up to do or something. I mean, there was, I had a lot of work and I just thought, well, yeah, you know, if the guys want to go off and do something, that's fine. And then they did some recording with various people. And at some point I got a call saying, you know, we've got mothers Talk, and I go, it's not quite really, you know, not quite right. Should we have a look at it? To which I said, yeah, okay. We'll have a look at it. And um, then I started working with them again. And that was the, the beginning Part of working on the second album
1: so it's Jeremy Green that produced that version of mother's talk you ever heard that version yes I know it yeah and what was your thoughts when you heard it
2: I think it's I think it's okay i think it's I think it's um competent <laughs>
1: <Ooh>. <laughs> I,
2: I do you know i i it's fine I just don't think it's i don't it's not, think it's, it's not as good as I thought it could be that's true
1: I've got, I've got to ask about mother's talk because Yourself and Roland and Kurt have, have all dissed
2: the song as like not very good. And now, here's the thing: I like the song. I was surprised. The first person that I heard of not caring for it much was Roe, Was Roland? When? When did you hear that? Not not that long ago. You know, in the last handful of years, I think I think you might have said, "Oh yeah, I never really cared for that that much." I, I they don't do it live either, do they? And I don't get it because I think it's a masterpiece. It's I, one of my favourites. I love it. And you know what, you know, I'll tell you this, I mean, it's probably been documented, but one of the, um, one of the things that, um, inspired some of that was, uh, Teen Town by Weather Report. I don't know if you know it. No, no, I've not heard that. Check it out. It's a Jaco Pastorius track called, uh, Teen Town, uh, and Jaco Pastorius, who's a, you know, he's dead now, but he's a world-famous bass player, but on that track, not only does he play bass, he also plays drums, and... The style of his drumming was what influenced Roland's programming on the Lindrum for that okay. ding, that sort of ding, 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 that whole kind of yep. staggered beat. Check out Jaco Pastorius's drumming on Teen Town because that's where that initial beat came from. And then I think the song kind of I wasn't there when he wrote it, but I think the song jammed out on top of that beat, and that's how it came about.
1: Already asked you about the string sample. Well, which we, everywhere quotes it, as, quotes it as being from a Barry Manilow song, but you're saying that's not the case. No, no, no this, is a, to be,
2: this is a great one. To be doubly, <laughs> to be doubly clear, I spoke to a the other day about this very thing. Okay. <laughs> and here's the deal. So, it came with the emulator library. Right. That, and that, you know, thing was done on an emulator. Now, whether Emu Systems emulator got that sample <laughs> from Barry, that's my
1: next question. Yeah, was it actually taken from?
2: Yeah, that oh. is that I, is I'm
1: never going to know what song is it, Copacabana or not? I need to know. Yeah,
2: here's the thing: the actual sample, um, if you if you kind of listen to it, the actual sample isn't very long and it's looped. Yeah, mm. so you'd have to look at Copacabana and try and find a bit in the track uh, where it's exposed and on its own enough. Right. Yes. Yes. I've tried. I had
1: this image of Roland coming to the studio one day holding a Brian Manler record, saying, "I've got it. I've got it here," and point to the record, and like, "That's just been blown now." It's
2: yeah. That would have all
1: my illusions.
2: That would have been great. That I. Wouldn't it? See
1: It would have been brilliant. Yeah, I'm going to show you. <laughs> it, it didn't happen. You know.
2: But yeah uh, okay so did you like just
1: come across that sound i thought that was it you were looking for a sound for the song or you found that sound i thought we can use that somewhere well. let's use it on this
2: song i'm um, that that sound that sample is roland that's part of his that's part of his invention so he wrote the song around that sound. well i don't know if he wrote it around that but certainly that that isn't something i on. i didn't say hey robert there's a great sample in the emulator he was <laughs> he was right on top of that and had that sound in
1: yeah okay anyway just tell roland when he speak to him next that mother's talk is a masterpiece okay and just like you I, know
2: i i have to appreciate
1: told. it and play it live I, you Yeah, you need to play live again
2: wouldn't that be great wouldn't it yeah perfect Actually, opener if 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 he did a medley of mother's talk and um the way you are
1: i thought it's a cup of cabana then <laughs> <laughs> that
2: would be
0: hilarious <laughs>
2: There's a, <laughs> there's a kind of mad kind of segue reworking of both of those to make them real 2020 or 2021 with the drum pattern. Well, you know, you could get, can, get the there's, a, there's enough great drummers who could play the hell out of that beat. It would work live. I and mean, you know, it would be great.
1: So Mother's Talk comes out and does a bit better than The Way You Are, but it's still not matching the singles from The Hurting. Was correct how how was the atmosphere then was there a bit of nervousness with the guys and with the record company
2: i'm sure there was but i mean i'm sure there was nervous conversations and kind of oh god it's going a bit how are we going to maintain this but you know there was also a momentum with like this is a band who's just had a successful album you know it's it's taken a bit of a lesser curve, but I don't think anyone was going, Oh God, it's all over, it's a shambles. I think we just plow on, guys, let's keep going, you know, something will come. So was this the stage where Roland went away to write some songs for a month? Yeah, quite quite possibly. I think he's done that a few times across time. But um yes, I don't remember specifically him going away. It feels that he probably he probably did, yeah. And he came back with shout or part of shout. Well, no. I mean in the chronology of things, that's not Strictly right because when we started working on um, The second album the second album got the the sort of green light from the record company because of the working hour and Head over heels. Yeah head over heels those two those were inked in those are going to be huge That'll be great. And let's just get the the album underway and things will come and we worked on and we worked on the album for uh, quite a long time just doing various bits and pieces. And then one, I think it was Monday morning, Ian Stanley uh, came came to see me and he said, get Roland to play you what he played me over the weekend. Because Ian had been over to his house over the weekend, we were hanging out. And uh, he, he just said, get Roland to play you this thing he's working on. Roland turns up <clears throat> with a drum box and a Prophet 5 synth. Uh, with, and the, the Prophet 5 synth has got a kind of, cello-y bass synth kind of sound and he sets up the drum box presses start and it's this little tick, 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 tai, hits this one key on the profit five and sings shout shout and it was mind-blowing and we just I said stop 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 what we're doing let's work on this now let's build this this is huge this is amazing and so to answer an earlier question that was one of the things I heard, absolutely from nothing, and thought, "Yeah, this is sensational. We must make this work." What were you I, thinking hit single then, or thinking just great track? Both. Uh, I, th- I thought it. I, in fact, I just thought it would be epic. Yeah. You know, that was I was interested. In, I was interested in the idea. That it was epic, and you know, it's an anthem, and the sentiment of the song is amazing. Let's do it. Let's get this absolutely great. We worked on that for. A long time and there was a period where that track was on the desk in the studio I think f- for several months we would just you know we'd come in and work on the track and you know it, it would get longer and more complicated and more grandiose and all that kind of stuff and um, I remember saying no no guys let's just get a guitar solo in this come on let's let's do guitars on this let's get a guitar solo and and I think um, Roland kind of probably knew I was going to suggest that. And he was kind of a little bit like, oh, really? I said, let's not even discuss it. Let's just do, let's get a guitar. Let's map a bit of it out and put a guitar solo on. And he more or less came up with that guitar solo off the cuff. And and there's a a jokey reference because he's basically playing you take the high road, I'll take the low road. That's what what he's quoting in the tune. I'm trying to hear it in my head now you take the high road, I'll take the high road. It's basically the <laughs> guitar line in, in the solo and chant. So you take the high road and I'll take the low road.
1: I don't know if that's enhanced the song for me or ruined it for me.
2: No, I hope it's done both. <laughs> okay. You're now living with the tension of the opposites there. <laughs> that's and brilliant. That, and that, you know, that track got longer and longer and... You know. So
1: when you work on one track for months, is there a case of you see the wood for the trees because like, how do you get a, a, a view on how good or bad it is or where it's at when you're spending so long on it? How can you take a look back and or step back and say this is done or this needs more work? Um, well, the l- danger of over tinkering with it.
2: Listen, um, my career is littered with things I've over tinkered. <laughs> And some of those have been successes, and some of those have been failures. So it's a really, hard, it's a really hard call. That you know, I had belief in the track, so I knew that we would get it in the end, and it wasn't coming quickly. Now I was right on top of the fact that it wasn't uh, an easy birth. That took a long time to, to to get right, and it's weird in as much as the the premise of it is quite simple. You'd think that would be something you could put together in no time, and would make sense and sound fresh and be done. But actually, yeah. it was painstaking, took a long time, and wasn't easy. I mean, all the, lo- all the way doing it, we-, we liked it. We knew it was great, but it
1: wasn't an easy birth. So was there a moment when you knew it was done, or was it a case of a company saying, we need a single,
2: and it was like, OK, we've got to get it done, and release it? Well, we finished the recording of it, and we were quite proud of the fact that it was six or seven minutes long, or whatever it was, you know. And I suppose there was a kind of bit of a political move to have... yeah. You know, fuck it, let's have a song, let's have a single that's really long. It's about time you know, these things could, you know, these anthem things could be long. Yeah, come on, let's do a, let's make it a really long single. And of course, you know, there were endless battles, and the record company wanted a short version for the radio, they just wanted it short. And that's referenced in the lyrics in Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Just a quick reference to that. So sad. But yeah, you know, it was edited down and faded and all the rest of it. And there was a single made of it, which obviously helped. So, I mean, Shout is probably the biggest
1: or most important single of their career because it came off back to two minor hits. Yeah. And was there a sense that this had to be a big hit or there was a feeling that this was going to be a big hit?
2: Oh, let me tell you, the the, the pain that was going on at the record. Because in those days, the, the song would sort of go up the charts week by week and as long as it went up um, it was doing okay so you know it might enter the charts at 75 and then next week it would go up to 40 and hopefully if it went up again you'd get Top of the Pops interested and then it would go up again uh, uh, I
1: I covered this in an episode it went up three places I think from like 31 to 28 I can imagine that week it'd be like oh my god yeah that's that's not 14 places or something
2: yeah fellas that's not great
1: yeah (laughs) That would have been a worry, wouldn't
2: it? It was horrible. Yeah, it was really horrible. And we're going. Well, we're sitting on this track. That's great, but not everybody agrees. You know, not everybody's buying it. And it, you know, the fact that it, it sort of hovered and then finally it suddenly clicked somewhere somehow, and uh, then became a successful track. But I think I think it was successful in America. I think it was. I think it was taken up by what they used to call urban radio. So it had a kind of kind of slightly black funk. Not that it is, but I think there was a kind of uh, interest in clubs and stuff in America. I think that's what
1: surprised me was how big it was in America, because obviously "Rule the World" was released there first and was the number one single. And you can you can yeah. hear that that's like built for American radio. Sure, but "Shout" is a six-minute single, this epic yeah. single. You yeah. can, it's amazing that got number one as well because it's a great song, but you can't you can't hear it the same way you can "Rule the World" as like this big American single.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a Everybody's easy on the ear, you know. It just is. You hear it, and it's kind of like a quite a pleasant sound. But shouts a little bit more like, you know, it's 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 a call to arms, and it's a little bit of an emotional, different thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, so- also, I can't I can't hear it now how it felt when I when it was done because I obviously I've heard it so much across time that it's just that sound now, you know. So do you understand. remember that first
1: playback when it was finished in the studio? Because I always remember as a documentary about 10CC talking about yeah. I'm Not In Love. And when yeah. they finished it, they had the lights out in the studio. They all sat there, listened to it over and over again as loud as possible. And they were just all like amazed by it. It's almost like it was created by somebody else who couldn't yes. believe they'd done it. It just sounded so incredible. Yes. I can imagine Shout, listen to that in full volume in the studio after completion it would have been like an amazing moment.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was for it was for Shout and it was for... Um, head over heels, and it was for everybody. Though, yeah, I remember thinking, "Wow, this, this feels good. This does feel a bit special." Yeah, I was excited by them, definitely. I'll tell you another thing. Yeah, out of those three, "Shout" for me personally, when I listened to "Shout," I could hear all the errors in it. You know, all the things that I felt I didn't get right or could have been better. Can you name one that you would you would No, I no, I wouldn't be able to get near it now, but at the time I definitely thought <laughs> And this is the point, this is the point. You have a you hear a track in the studio and you hear it back home and you hear it around a friend's house and you listen to it a bunch of times. you think, yeah, that's kind of yeah, it works. I like that, yeah, that's good. And you have these niggling moments where you think, Oh, I just wish I'd done that, or perhaps that could have been slightly better. But the minute you hear it in the public domain on the radio, for example, yeah. It's gone. You just go, oh, yeah, it just sounds like it's on the radio now. It doesn't. It's not about sounding full of errors. It just is. That's how it is now. And so there's a moment where you kind of wave it goodbye. Just let go of it. Yeah, you do. You hear it on the You hear it on the radio. Or then in those days, you hear it on the radio and you go, oh, yeah, it's out in the public domain. It's out in the airwaves. So when you hear it on the radio now, what do you think? Now I hear it as I hear it as how it sounds. I just hear it as like something I've heard for the past number of years you know it just sounds like the, it just sounds the way that song sounds that may sound vague but it's 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 the truth it just i hear it it comes on and i hear it it's just the way it sounds
1: so it's a complete thing like it almost by somebody else like you yes it's yeah. just
2: a block, it's just a block of sound that i, <laughs> I completely understand
1: because for me as a 12 year old it was it was such a huge song it was i mean in every sense i mean yeah it's probably my favorite single of the 80s
2: Oh, that's nice
1: to know. Yeah, I was twelve yeah. when I first heard it and then I, I went backwards and got everything of Tears Fears, including the graduate ten inch. Did, did you ever hear the graduate stuff? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of it?
2: That's great, you
1: know. For what it is, it's not bad, is it? For like yeah. seeing as they're like what, 18 years old when they made it?
2: I think John John Baker's has amongst that, isn't he, as well? Yeah, he did. Yeah. But John's John's around, he's a he's a good fast lad.
1: Alright, so we're on to the sessions for Songs for the Big Chat as far as I understand it, the dynamic in the studio would be yourself, Roland and Ian Stanley. That would be the nucleus day in, day out.
2: I think that, I mean, that's a tidy version. I think the truth is more myself and Roland and Ian and Kurt and Dave Bascom. Dave Bascom gets kind of under-talked about, really. Sure, it's the engineer, yeah. Yeah. Um, He he was um, quite often the glue. You know, he just... We'd be talking about things and trying ideas and he'd just be getting on with it and making sure it all kind of worked on some level so he he was a a great aspect to that to the fluency of how that record made sense and then Kurt, you know I mean I've had so many conversations with people saying, "Oh well maybe Kurt wasn't that involved and I think well that's not right. he was involved on a different level he was less likely to be the guy that would spend hours and hours and hours in the studio but he is the guy that walks in uh and goes i like that don't think that's right how about this and then he'll sing a melody and we'll go oh fantastic so his input is like much more an impulse power he comes in has a few thoughts has a bunch of ideas tries a few things obviously does a load of singing but um when he's not singing and he's in the studio he's he's You know, he's fully formed and and proactive and knows what he's talking about. Can you think of an example in the
1: big chair sessions where he came in and made that kind of contribution?
2: Yeah, I think think harmony vocal ideas and melody ideas and how something might uh, work a different way or a bass thing could do a certain thing. I mean, he's just he is as I say, fully formed, knows what he's doing, you know. But it seems not...
1: like his opinion was quite important. I mean, Roland seemed to value his opinion. I, I, I believe it's been said that it was originally going to be a B-side and he was the one that said, no, no, I should go on the album. he has a,
2: a massive, massive say in how things are. He's a, yeah. you know, he's a, a fully paid up, you know, <laughs> member of the group. So his opinion is very valid. It's just that um, he doesn't write as much material for Tears for Fears as, as Roland does. So Was then, there
1: any ever a uh, suggestion of like him, him getting involved in the writing? Because obviously, after The Hurting, Rowland seemed to have a writing partner. He had Ian Stanley for Songs from the Big Chair, he had Nicky Holland for Scenes of Love. Was there ever any suggestion or discussion about him sitting down with Kurt to write songs? Because I know he's got the two songwriting credits, but they're for very specific things, It's not for like sitting down with two guitars, writing yes. songs together.
2: I, I'm not sure whether they, the chemistry's right. I could be wrong, you know, and, and yeah. they may. They may have done, and they may in the future. But I don't think – I can't remember a time when the two of them would be sitting down with the sort of express purpose of hanging out and maybe writing a song. No, I don't remember that happening. Okay. But, you know, inside – and it's an area I don't really want to get into, but there was an area where, you know, they weren't seeing eye to eye. I mean, yeah. balanced out. I mean, they had they – had there was, you know, periods where they didn't see eye to eye and, and, and it went a bit wrong. But, you know, these things do. So was that ever noticeable in the studio? Was there ever any
1: tension or was it just like in the studio it was fine? It was just outside the studio there was a difference of opinion.
2: I, I think the thing is they were friends for a long time beforehand. You know, they were school friends. And I think when you've had that long period of friendship and then you start working and then you're in the trenches together and then it's successful, it has a, an effect on how you view each other. So no, it's a fairly natural progression that they would have, you know, what with all the success and the whole thing, there would be a period where they'd have, want to have a time out and probably spend time apart and not get on. But they came back together, and and, and their working relationship's amazing. Yeah, it's one
1: thing I thought I'd never see was them working together again. So that was quite a nice surprise when they did start doing yeah. that, actually writing songs together as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they got it right in that respect. Look at them now. They're doing wonderful gigs, you know, yeah. and playing and singing beautifully. I'm going
1: to ask you one rule the world question because I feel like I should. The writing credit—you uh, got the writing credit on that. I mean, I find that interesting. I find that fascinating. The idea of writing credits is like, well, what point is that agreed? Because clearly, you made a huge contribution to the song. Yeah. At what point is that? Is that does that happen at the end of the process when the album's about to be released and they got to decide the writing credits, or is it earlier on where you say? Well, yeah. these,
2: these these days, some producers they you know put a tambourine on the track and want <laughs> the writing credit, and in the case of. That writing credit and my involvement with that song, ultimately, that was um, something that Roland uh said. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, you've co-written that. It's simple. It was. Some, it wasn't something I asked for. He just felt. He just felt. Yeah. You. You were in, sort of insistent upon that song getting getting finished. I mean, I've I've told this story before. I was in. I was working in the studio, and I kept hearing Roland on an acoustic guitar going gang gang two chords and I kept saying what is that what is that they say oh nothing just a couple of chords you know and um gang gang and hear it again and I will say what is it what are the chords What are the two chords I wrote them down and I programmed them up in a little box keyboard thing and a little shuffled beat, and um, that I had that floating around the studio for ages and there was no real, he wasn't really that bothered about writing the song or bringing forward what bits of song he might have had. But I kept playing it and there'd be a down moment in the studio and I'd pop it on, hoping to get something going and his wife came in and said, oh what's that, that's great, and I, I said, yeah, tell, tell Ronald tell him it's great, tell him to finish it, it's just two chords. Come on. And I think he came in with a, a melody after a weekend, and we literally, Rowan, myself, and Ian sat down and built the track. Simple as that. And that was a quicker process than
1: the *Shout*. That was oh, the, part, the, the opposite. It's
2: like chalk and cheese. You know, I mean, *Shout* took forever, and everybody was done super quick. You know, it was really quick in, in comparison. But you know. Insight and it's an area I don't really want to get into, but there was an area where you know they weren't seeing eye to eye oh I mean, yeah it was balanced out i mean they had they had a there was periods where they didn't see eye to eye and 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 it went a bit wrong, but um you know these things do so was that ever noticeable in the
1: studio? was there ever any tension or was it just like in the studio it was fine it was just outside the studio there was
2: a difference of opinion I, I think the thing is they were friends for a long time beforehand, you know they were school school friends and I think. You know, when you when you've had that long period of friendship and then you start working and then you're in the trenches together and then it's successful. It has a it has a, an effect on how you view each other. So it's a fairly natural progression that they would have, you know, what with all the success and the whole thing, there would be a period where they'd have a, want to have a time out and probably spend time apart and not get on. But they came back together and, and, and their working relationship's amazing. Yeah, there's one thing I thought I'd never see was them working together
1: again. So that was quite a nice surprise when they did start doing yeah. that, actually writing songs together as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they got it right in that respect. Look at them now. They're doing wonderful gigs, you know, yeah. and play, playing and singing beautifully. Do you remember when the album title um, run came up with that? Do you remember that day? Were you there for that? Yes, I was. And it was, with- a com- it was a combination of a couple of things. You know, we were in, yeah, there was a, we were in Ian's house and in Ian's studio there was a sofa which was absolutely huge. Um, you could sit four or five people on it and it was right dominant in the room. And then there was a, a film that Roland and Kurt were both into. Sybil, is the film? Yeah. Um, she's only really comfortable when she's sitting in a chair and you know, the whole nature of that. And it was like that whole process of that chair and the whole nature of things. I'm not actually sure it was Roland. My memory, Roland came in with the idea that he he liked the idea of the big chair, you know, uh, and we were laughing about, well, this record, that big chair, and him talking about the big chair, back to the film. And I I could be wrong, but I think Kurt said, yeah, songs from the big chair. Now, you can quote me or not, I'm not saying that's for certain. I know it was a combination of the big chair in the room and that, the, the notion of that film, and Roland saying, yeah, you know, the big chair. And we did the B side of big chair. Okay, one more question on songs from the big chair. I covered
1: in, in an episode that both Roland and Kurt said that Everybody wants to Rule the World was chosen out of three songs. They had it. more songs than they needed, and they chose this one. Ian Stanley said separately they didn't have enough material. Now, I always assumed there wasn't much material there, and they had these eight songs. So was it true that, all the world was taken out of three remaining songs
2: we re- we recorded the re- the album without shout and everybody being ri- they weren't they weren't even in the air and we started making that record and those two tracks came up and got placed in the record that's what happened
1: we- so they were the last two songs shout
2: and Roll the world yes wow mm-hmm. We um, we, may have tried, we may have tried a couple other bits and pieces of a few things afterwards just to see if there's anything floating around. But no, those, those were the last sort of cogent tracks that we
1: did. And so you don't remember there being two other complete songs that were ditched for all
2: the world? No.
1: No? no. Okay. I
2: Although, uh, it, uh, because I don't remember it, doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just, okay. re- I just remember those two tracks coming up whilst we were making the record towards the end. Roland may well have had other tunes that he wanted to try out and mess around with. What I don't remember is something being recorded, finished, and then agreed that it wasn't going to be on the record. I think things may well have been abandoned along the way, if you see what I'm saying, that's quite yeah, different. yeah. You know, because you can, like
1: a work in progress that never gets finished.
2: Yeah, everyone can agree that this isn't quite working. It's a very different feeling than here's a track we worked really hard on and it's finished and no one really likes it. You know, that's very different. And I don't remember a couple of tracks which were like in full belief worked on that we then ditched.
1: Right. So Roland's pretty good at coming up with the goods at the last minute, isn't he? As we'll find out with the next album as well.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. That's
1: amazing. Those are the last two tracks that were completed for the album.
2: Sure. Sure. I oh, know his his writing abilities are phenomenal.
1: Okay, Seas of Love was the
2: one that surprised me because do you have you listened to the box set? I've got I've just been sent the box set. I have read the booklet and all the stuff, but I haven't sat down and played the tracks.
1: Because I ne- I never realized just how involved you were in the sessions because obviously when the album came out, I think your only credit is the drums on the, song, the Seas of Love. Sure. But as far as I can tell, so you were involved to some extent in, on every track?
2: On the album. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I worked, how it went was this. I worked, I think for about 11 months on that record and I worked on, you know, massive aspects of arrangement on things like Woman in Chains. There's lots of bits and pieces I worked on. And I think after about 11 months, it was just, it was not going at the right rate and it didn't feel like we were achieving things. And I just kind of I never lost interest, but I, I lost focus in how this was going to work. And I think it was just a, a time when Ronan was probably having some trouble with Kurt and probably having trouble with me. And it was a kind of relationships thing and the kind of decision-making and the speed of which it was all going. And I think it was just one of those things where they kind of wanted to sort of carry on and do it themselves, which is absolutely fair enough. And I I went off to the States and lived in new york for three years and i come back periodically and, and see them and they'd play me what they're up to and i kind of stayed involved on some level so i was there kind of um making suggestions and having a critical ear on stuff but you i said they so, kind of as a sounding board after that in terms yeah of, i mean yeah. I, on the basis that i know the guys well you know it wasn't difficult to to go and see them and and um see what they're up to and you know yeah right all right so i don't mean it's a
1: negative way but there, was there a sense that Ronan was kind of unproducible at that point because he's you, you reach a level where you rightly as a singer songwriter you feel like i know what i want so therefore i'm not gonna be produced i need someone as a co-producer maybe to, to, to realize my ideas but in terms of somebody saying i don't like that let's try this well i know what i want was there a sense that he'd outgrown the use of a
2: producer in that sense that's a very good question the answer is complex he is very amenable if you have an idea or you want to make a critique about something he will listen and he will take it on board it's not like he he ever became someone that kind of knew how he wanted it and didn't want people involved and you know never the case so he was always always open-eared about criticism and ideas and thoughts and would readily play me stuff. It wasn't, that wasn't the problem. Uh, I think what happens with some, some artists when they've made a lot of records and they know the process and they kind of know what they want. uh, The role of producer can be different. You know, it's like I've said many times, some artists they'll get to a point in their career where they no longer really want your opinion. They want your approval and they want you to be positive positive and hopefully infuse in the right direction and come in and go, great, guys, keep going, this is great, and mean it. Obviously, you know, you don't say it if you don't mean it, but, you know, if you find the positivity mm-hmm. of what they're doing and, you know, you like the things that are working and positive and uh, you infuse, which is the right thing to do at a certain point because there's, there's no point in telling an artist walking, and I don't like that because it means nothing. You don't mm. want to come in with a bunch of negativity. You want to say that string part there and that bass—they're fantastic. You can make more of those because they're really good. And they might go, "Oh yeah, great. Yeah, I th- oh, yeah, I thought, yeah, I quite like. Yeah, great. Oh, I like. I like the fact you like that. So you can you could be influential by being positive. And so in the case of Roland, I don't think I don't think he really needed someone on a day-to-day level going, "Oh no, don't do that. Oh no, mate, that's no good. You know, he would respond to someone going, "Well." Yeah, that's great. Keep going. And obviously, doesn't need that every day of the week. So, you know, he's quite capable of making records on his own.
1: So you worked with them initially, then I understand they worked with Clive Langer, Alan Wynn Stanley. That didn't work.
2: Well, I mean, Clive and Alan an amazingly talented guy. Brilliant.
1: Uh, yeah, they I mean, just their stuff with Madness and Elvis Costello and Dex. Oh,
2: absolutely. Absolutely amazing. You know, and it, it's there's absolutely no reason why, why they can't make records with a whole load of people and, and it'd be great, you know. But I think when they were trying to find other people and, and come up with different ideas and stuff. There was always other people in the wings saying, oh, no, I'm not sure about that liaison or I don't know about that. So there was a kind of... Is that the record company you mean saying? Well, to some degrees. It's never, it's never a straight... These days, it's a lot easier to do, say, oh, well, I want to go off for a, a week or two and do a collaboration with that person. And anybody in a record company going, oh, no, not a good idea, would be hopeless. You know, you'd have to try these things out these days. You know, but but I think things were guarded much more in the old days. You know, like, oh, I don't know if that's a good career move. And there was quite a lot of sort of, oh, are you sure that's a good idea?
1: So when you came back the second time after Lang and Stanley, was the dynamic different the second time in the studio once you returned?
2: I don't think I was, on a day-to-day level, very involved, to be honest. I mean, I left and went to New York, and I, I did an album with Rika Cassick from The Cars. And... You know, I popped back to England every now and again, and I think they were still sort of still working on the record, and I I just listened to what they were doing and made comments, but I wasn't really involved in recording. Second time round on Sowing the Seeds, no. So
1: Ian Stanley was he there both times? Because he was there for Sowing the Seeds of Love, wasn't he? he? Played the organ on that. So was he there for the initial sessions, or was he the one that came back
2: post Langham and Stanley? Uh, Ian Stanley, um, I don't. To be honest, Ian Stanley wasn't really involved that much with Sowing the Seeds. He was, because he's a mate and, you know, we've all worked together, it'd be easy to walk in the studio and, oh, this is great, and then end up playing a little synth on something or, or, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, um, I don't remember him being signed up as a full-time member of the team that made that record. Because there is one Ian Stanley co-write,
1: which is always in the past. So was that always part of the batch of songs for the album or was that
2: always like B-side, separate? I think that was something they wrote uh, quite early on. I could be wrong here. I can't remember Ian's involvement in that record
1: that much. Because there was clearly a shift away from writing with Ian Stanley to writing with Nicky Holland. Correct. Was that due to some kind of falling out or just moving away from each other or suggestion that Ian Stanley wanted to be... Part of the group on a on a more like a three three man basis, and that was a disagreement.
2: Well, there's that there, there undoubtedly there will have been conversations between Kurt, Ian, and Roland as potential band members or not, which I wasn't either that interested in or or aware of. I'm sure they would have looked at how that would work. But I think you know Ian's his own man. You know he, he comes and goes and does what he kind of wants, really. You know, and he was very very influential in the early pre-hurting stages ian was very supportive and helpful and helped them do demos and stuff there's a phenomenal musician and a
1: huge contributor to um big chair
2: so many massive, co-writes as well massive massive yeah. massive not to mention the fact that a large part of that album was recorded in his house
1: and of course he co-wrote mother's talk was of course is
2: a masterpiece as i keep saying yeah i
1: agree with you yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> okay so is it true that you told Roland? Like with Songs for the Big chair, when he went away for a month and wrote Shout and Rule the World to complete the album, you told him to go away and write more songs and he came back with Woman in Chains and Sowing the Seas of Love. Is that true?
2: I don't remember. I don't remember. Oh, come
1: does. on. Say that's true. That's got to, that has to be true. That'd be amazing I, if that's true.
2: I will happily indulge in fantasizing that it's true. What,
1: what can I say? It's in the booklet of the box set. So it's it's written down. So it must be true. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm going to try and find the quote.
2: If it's written down, then it's true.
1: It's <laughs> <Thank> okay. <you. laughs> uh, just talk some more about something to do with uh, the Seas of Love while I try and find the
2: quote. So in Seas of Love, a large amount of that was recorded and worked on at Roland's house in England's Lane in London. I was living in South London at the time and used to come up every day and work for hours on end on that record for about 11 months. With Dave Bascom, he was ever-present. Uh, it was a period where Kurt, I think, was coming and going a little less than he had been. And then it just sort of collapsed for a while.
1: <laughs> I found the quote, OK, from Dave Bascombe actually. Oh, Bascombe! boy. All right. Chris's best contribution before I got on the scene. And this is only what I heard, so I don't know for sure. But early on, there wasn't Woman in Chains and So in the Seas of Love. And Chris said, you need some more songs. Roland went away and came up with those two, which are the best two tracks. Ring any uh,
2: bells? <laughs> that sounds very like Dave. And I might well phone him up later. On the <laughs> <time>. <laughs> what the hell he was on about? No, uh, I mean, that's possibly how he remembers it. It's possible. I, so, I so want that to well, be true, because
1: that'd be amazing. It's like Quincy Jones telling Michael Jackson to go away and write two more songs for Thriller, and he comes back with Beat It and Billie Jean.
2: Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah,
1: it's it? yeah. perfect. It's amazing.
2: Maybe we should leave it at that, that I did tell him to go off and write if you speak to David about it and then
1: hear any different, then just just send me a message, okay? What but I'll assume that's true unless I hear otherwise, okay? Excellent. Okay, if you don't mind, uh, can we do a quick fire round? Because I want to try and get as much information out of you as possible. while I've got you here? Sure. So a few quick fire questions, okay? So just just fire what comes to mind for these. Um, it's all related to tears, fears, of course. Favorite B side.
2: Ah, uh, that would be Pharaohs. Okay. <laughs> I'm saying, obviously, because that was a wonderfully relaxed session to make a B-side. And um, we just happened to have the Fairlight and a bunch of gear around and punched up a little shuffle beat, uh, punched up a little shuffle beat. And we were just playing with aspects of Everybody Wants To Rule The World. Yes. You know, and Roland alludes to the guitar part and you know, I had um, I'd recorded the shipping forecast and was sitting there just lacing bits of forecast onto the track, and it just it just captured an atmosphere.
1: You recorded the shipping forecast for the purpose of using it for a B-side. Is that the idea?
2: But no, I had I recorded the the uh, shipping forecast at some point. It, I didn't think oh specifically that would be great for a B-side. It's just it just I think it was the the. Ian's do 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 this kind of this sailing by kind of drifty kind of yeah I just thought yeah let's put a, a bit of this cassette recording of the weather forecast of the shipping forecast and it just kind of worked made sense so I I personally like that a lot yeah good choice um, least favourite single probably probably would be where you are yeah because, because of how ill conceived what was going on around it you know it's, it, it the song. It's a cute little song, but it, it's got too much pressure on it to be a hit single.
1: There's no immediate hook to it,
2: is this all kind of...
1: It's an atmosphere thing. one thing, could yeah, be, yeah.
2: Great, if, if the pressure had been taken off it and it would have become an album track, it could have been great. Okay,
1: favourite Roland haircut of the 80s?
2: Oh, the Mad World haircut in the vid.
1: Really? Okay, yeah. what, why?
2: It's just how I remember how he was when it was being made. <laughs> okay. A, a very fond time, yeah. Three words to describe Kurt in the eighties: funny, talented, um, complex. Mm. In what sense? Well, I I, I don't think perhaps what you see is, you know, he's he's. I mean, they're both complex, in fact. But because you're asking about Kurt, very funny, very witty. You know, we'd have I'd, I'd spend a lot of time having a laugh with kurt he's he's got whack you know a whacked sense of humor it's he's got a great sense of humor and i enjoy it immensely and he's super talented you know he's a a very fine musician fantastic powers of retention you ask him to try something once he'll remember it you know he's the guy everyone goes to with what did we do on the last bit how does that go his memory (laughs) is sensational so he's 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 very talented and as I say, complex in as much as, you know, he's not just one dynamic, he's not just one friendly guy who turns up to sing. He's this, yeah. layers, you know, he's a complex guy.
1: Excellent, okay.
2: The song that got away, the song where from when you heard it originally to
1: the finished version, so you feel like something didn't quite translate, didn't get across. Is there a track you can think of? Probably I believe much. maybe. Okay, and and what was missing that you feel
2: like um, you can capture? It's an elusive thing because I think, this, I mean, it's great, I absolutely adore it and I love Roland singing on it but I could imagine that being done in a different way so I'm always left I'm always left hearing that in a slightly more ethereal magical way and it's really hard to express what I mean you know it's like I'd have to make a version of it and then fail at that to go oh well that was what I was thinking of and it's right. Yeah. do you prefer but the single version I prefer the album version album version okay yeah. okay three words to describe Roland in the 80s. Very intelligent, and we'll have that as one word. His intellect, it, you know, <clears throat> is astounding. I suppose, um, I mean, immensely talented, again. I mean, it sounds like I'm going to be saying immensely talented, funny, and complex <laughs> for both of them. And in a way, those <laughs> that would be about right. So would you say they're more
1: alike than different as personalities? Because there is the image, obviously, because of how it ended, that they must be
2: complete opposites, and they must have locked heads, and... Obviously, they're not brothers, but if you know about brothers, how they can be absolutely core similar and yet fight the whole time and yeah. have a disagreement and a, a different way of doing something, well, then it's not that bad with, with Kurt Roland, but they're like brothers on some level. You know, they'll be across the room. They'll say three words to each other and they'll know exactly what they mean. So they're very, they're very close and very intuitive together at times and other times they're not you know so yeah it's very hard to say they're very very similar because they are on some level and then they're obviously very independently individual on another level they've had a very successful career for quite a long time so considering that they are similar because they both successfully made this thing work okay two
1: more what are your top three tears of fear songs of the 80s you can only have three to keep forever
2: Oh, my word. I suppose Sowing the Seeds, Everybody, and maybe Shout. Yeah, probably is Shout. I mean, there's a ruck waiting to get in that top three. You know, Head Over Heels is, if you were asking me for top four, Head Over Heels would be in there. Right. Great song. And rank the albums from three to one. Well, I don't think I can um, because they're they're inexorably linked and they're quite different to each other. And they're also made by the same guys, you know, ranked in terms of what I personally like about them or how successful they appear or just uh, your own personal view of them as an album of songs, like how successful you think they are as, as I think the songwriting on um, sowing the seeds is amazing, but it's more, If you like, it's more, on some level, it's more conventional. You know, the songwriting is more mature and sort of similar to other things. Whereas I think writing on The Hurting is probably the most unique and Songs from the Big Chair is more complete as a bunch of songs that shouldn't work but kind of do.
1: How do you look back on your time with Tears Fears in the 80s? How do you reflect on it?
2: Oh, extremely fondly. You know, I love the guys, and I love a lot of the records we made. Simple as that. Yeah,
1: it's great. Well, you should be proud because it's a, a brilliant back catalogue. It's perfectly formed, like thank just you. three fantastic albums. And thank you. Yeah. I,
2: I am, I am proud of it. Yeah.
0: The interview is now over.
1: So there we have it. That was the interview with Chris Hughes. It's a great thrill to be able to talk to the guy who produced those two albums that meant so much to me and have been in my life for thirty-five years. And what an eighties he had. When you think of all those I mean it wasn't just in Adam and the Ants He produced all those hits of the 80s Like Kings of the Wild Frontier And Ant Music, Ant Rap Prince Charming Stand and Deliver Adam Ant's first solo single Goody Two Shoes Which still sounds great today Actually they all sound great um, What else did he produce it? Leaned on Me, box, If I remember that one That was a big hit And also he mentioned Wang Chung Producing an Wang Chung album In the interview And I checked afterwards And he, he produced Dance All Days Another 80s gem oh, Plus he was involved with um, Red Rain the drum programming on that for Peter Gabriel And also produced Paul McCartney Part of Flowers in the Dirt So what an 80s Well thanks again to Chris for that It was, it was a real pleasure to do that um, I'm going to leave another Chris Hughes production This is Howard Jones For me this is his last brilliant track on this Cross That Line album Produced by Chris, Ross Cullum and Ian Stanley uh, The Prisoner, this is great And I'll see you next time For the last part of the TFF 80s adventure kiss kiss